Finally, I had a decision. And I said, no, sir. And I didn't. And I hung up. I got a phone call five minutes later from a major, and he did the same thing to me. And it's kind of scary when you're a lieutenant and only been there for a month. But what was what was right? I was doing the right thing. And so that's, I just can't not do the right thing. There's something in me, and I hope in a lot of people that feel that way in today's world. We need more of that. And the West Point Colonel uh, got these reports. He picked up an ashtray and threw it at the captain and major and chewed them out, right? Because they were wrong. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that war story comes from who else but Korean war medic, former mayor of Salem, Morgan, and my grandfather, Dr. Roger Gurdenrich, who urges us all today to lead with our moral compasses. And on today's episode, Bob shares how to lead under pressure situations, the importance of building a base, and how to use your compass to get to where you're going. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a round of applause for my mother's father, the real Dr. Roger Gurdenrich. Enjoy. In five, four, three, two, and one, and welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is probably the wisest person you'll ever meet, but someone who probably hasn't even heard of a podcast. It's my grandfather, Mr. Roger Gurdenrich. Bapa, how are we doing today? Well, you made a mistake right away. I, I'm not a mister. What I'm a doctor. Oh, uh, sorry, doctor. Let me let me rephrase that. Dr. Roger Gurdenrich. There you go. Our, uh, dentists are doctors, though. That's right. We are. No, they're not. <laughs> they're, they're fake That's doctors, pretty- aren't they? Oh, uh, I think I am, but... <laughs> We're just kidding here. So, uh, Bapa, we were kind of just you know talking before the show. I said, I need a haircut. You said you get yours for free. Um, when was the last time you had a haircut? Jeez, that's so long ago, I can't remember. I, I can't remember when I had hair. I, I keep asking the little kids in the building if they found my hair, and they keep saying, no, they haven't. So, I, I don't know where it went. Man, you can't believe those kids. They definitely have it somewhere, though. Yeah. So, Baba, you know, I, I'm just so excited to have you on, as you can tell from my my voice today, my tone. Um, I, I've just been thinking about this recently, and I was like, you know what? I, I feel like you're the one of the most wise people I've ever met. And if I don't have you on the show, I wouldn't be doing my job. So I, what I want you to do, Bob, but today I, we, we barely talked about this. It's really just, I just want you to kind of dive into your journey, your background, where you come from, where you went, and kind of some of the lessons you learned along the way. So maybe start off with kind of your upbringing, your childhood, and uh, and, and go from there. Well, the first thing I'd tell you is you don't, there's an old saying that you don't judge wisdom by the length of the beard. Mm. No, there's a lot of old people that are not wise. So I don't profess to be have the, all the wisdom that uh, you might think I might have. I do have 86 years of living and through a lot of interesting times in our world. And certainly the virus has pr- uh, produced an interesting time right now. Um, no, I, I, I grew up in, I was born in Chicago and uh, 
raised partly there, but also in a little little town in Wisconsin called Wild Rose. There was only 500 people there. And they both gave me different perspectives on life. Um, and as I grew up in the bigger city, I saw the materialistic uh, tendencies of people. As I grew up in the smaller community, there was much more sense of community. People, teachers, parents, they all knew who I was. I couldn't get away with anything, that's for sure. When I was growing up, everyone would know what was happening. I would say that today, in this in this podcast, uh, your audience is your age and probably 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year olds. Uh, and they've lived a long time too. So I want to make my presentation to you and to them productive because I believe not in just talking, I believe in doing and getting things accomplished. There's an old Montana saying that talk is cheap, but it costs money to buy whiskey. Right? <laughs> I've told you that one before. So the first thing that I have done for all of my grandkids, and others can do this for their grandkids, is give them some advice that they can hang their hat on, something that's important. And one of the first things that I said to you and many others is that the first person, when you get your first paycheck, the first person you pay is yourself to a tax-deferred account. And you do that so that when you get to be my age, the world won't hurt you. You've got to start putting money away and saving money. And the first person you do that to is yourself. You put it in a tax-deferred account, an IRA account, something like that. Of the young people that I told that to, about half of them did it, about half didn't. And those that did it now call me up and are grateful that they did it because now they have money to live in this very demanding world. The other thing that I tell them, and this is important, a lot of a lot of your listeners probably will cringe a little bit at this one, but is to be very careful who you marry, because that's very important. And I have I am fortunate that I have married a wonderful woman who I've had as my wife for 60 years. And when you marry well and you marry somebody that is working with you, your life is so much smoother. So I think today's world, people have to be extremely careful who they marry. Wise words again. Now, let's I think you kind of avoid the question a little bit, though, Papa. What's you, you, you grew up in Chicago. Yeah. And then Wild Rose, uh, Wisconsin. And uh, what's what's the path to becoming a dentist? What's the path to becoming a mayor? Where did you go? Give it to us. Well, first of all, I would tell you that in high school, I didn't study much. I played sports and had a good time. And uh, when I went to college, Ripon College in Wisconsin, I was ill-prepared, not-prepared. I had to take what they call dummy math and dummy English because I flunked both of those. Um, I was a student that didn't believe that you had to study in the evening in college. I just was completely unaware of how I lacked the skills that many from bigger cities had. But what that little town gave me was a persistent tenacity and a drive to 
just keep going. So I saw a lot of my friends from the big cities drop out. They partied too much. I just kept hanging in there. And when I went to the chemistry class, I had never taken chemistry in high school. And they put two things together and it precipitated out and it changed color. I wanted to know, what was it? And so I took Roman literature. I took every course that I could possibly take. My, I had a deep thirst for knowledge. I also was raised in a small town that said, get involved with your community. So in college, I helped start a local uh, campus radio station. I named it WRPM, WRPN, and it is now uh, a, a city, Ripon City radio station, WRPN. So from there, I took a lot of science uh, courses, and at one time I thought I wanted to be a, an attorney. So I turned from that to the sciences, and then I asked myself, what do I want? And I put a piece of paper down, and I said, first thing I want is I, I want a white-collar job. I want a job that pays more than normal so that I can get retire earlier than normal so that I can get back to going out of doors and the things that I really love. So I picked <clears throat> dentistry. That was my pre-med, pre-dental um, uh, bent in, in college. And actually, I had the college actually because I had so many uh, courses in uh, biology and so many courses in, in chemistry. Uh, they actually created a new major for me to graduate from college called a chemistry biology major. And I was a pre-med major, pre-dental major. So I was the only one that got and, and the, and the first one that got that major. And during college, the Korean conflict was on at that time, and my high school friends were going to uh, Korea and uh, some being killed over there. Mm. Uh, and, and by the way, in my little high school class, there was only 12 boys, and in my senior year, four of them died. So I had funerals of four of my good friends in my high school die at that time. But anyway, back to college. I was in ROTC because I knew I was going to go likely to Korea, but I figured I might as well go as an officer. And while I was in college, I'd get paid. They paid you something. So when I got out of uh, college, uh, sure enough, I, I, got, I was a lieutenant in the Medical Service Corps, and I was sent to Korea. So I spent 16 months in Korea, two winters, and that was an experience in itself. It gave me a lot of leadership skills because there was a lot of need for um, things to be done. In my unit, we didn't have showers. We didn't have um, a mess hall, things like that. So when I came out of the service, well, I was, um, before I came out of the service, I had to decide exactly what I wanted to do. So I, asked, I was in a medical company. And I asked the dentists and I asked the physicians, what do you think of those two careers? Most of the dentists said be a dentist. Most of the physicians say be a dentist. So I, I had the exams sent over to Seoul, and I took the, de the dental exams um, 
in, in uh, Korea. And I got accepted to three of the four schools that I applied to, and I selected Northwestern University. So <clears throat> from there, uh, when I got out of the service, I went back to Chicago and went back to dental school, and I lived with my grandparents. My grandparents were wonderful people. They did a lot to help me out. But it was a, a long shot from where they lived to the school. I had, had to get up at five in the morning and take the bus, and I had to take the L and then another bus six days a week. And I didn't have the benefit of the others that had the files, uh, fraternity files and all of that. But I managed to survive dental school. And uh, after that, uh, during uh, that time, I, I got married to Carol. She was teaching out in the uh, that particular area of Chicago. And I met her and uh, we got married. And that's where we had our first daughter, Jill. And eventually we had Julie. And we had Julie when I was on an internship. So I took an internship. A lot of dentists don't do that. That was in a hospital in Detroit. And that was a, um, a deep experience because the hospital did a lot of trauma. And so I was involved with a lot of trauma around the uh, oral cavity, uh, much more extensive than uh, you would have in a general practice um, because the hospital treated a lot of emergencies. <clears throat> and I'd had a lot of experience in Korea uh, treating people, one individual uh, stepped on a landmine and blew off his uh, foot um, and, and died in my arms, actually. So, but I had had a lot of experience, so that helped me uh, excel, I think, in that internship. But then I had to figure out where I'm going to live. And this is the next point I would tell to your audience um, is this, the job. Uh, to me, where you live was more important than the job. And I realize that that's not what a lot of people can do. They have to find the job and go to wherever it is to live. But I would counsel people that if they're talented, they can probably survive in any good community, but they, they should pick first where they want to live. Because if you're not happy where you're living, the job is rather dull and boring, and it's not going to be satisfying. If you live in an area like we here live in Oregon, uh, for us, it was, it's really a happiness because the streams were filled with steelhead and salmon and trout. And, and there in Oregon at that time, there were very few uh, low populations. So I made a study of all of the states uh, one of the states I ruled out right away was California because there's too damn many people there, you know, and uh, and the streams were filled with people with uh, didn't know how to fish anyway. So, uh, but I narrowed it down to the Pacific Northwest. I took my little bag of dental tools and got on an airplane and flew into Portland and took the exams in Portland and. I pretty well felt that I knew that I had passed the exams and I was going to bring my family with my first daughter, Jill, and my second daughter, Julie, your mother. And 
I like to say we came out to Oregon in a covered wagon. It was an old Dodge station wagon. And we had no money, no money. We didn't know anybody. I just said, that's where we're going. Because that's the place that both of us wanted to live. We came across the Oregon border and there was a rainbow. But as we drove across Eastern Oregon, Carol, my wife, looked rather despondent because she's a city girl from Chicago. And what does she see in Eastern Oregon? But nothing, but nothing. (laughs) We drove into Bend in Central Oregon and went to bed. That next morning we woke up and the sky was clear and there was Mount Hood. And from that point on, Oregon fell in love with Oregon. Oregon has been a beautiful place for us to live. So that's how I got from Wild Rose to where I live now. That's a quite the story. I appreciate you sharing that. And there's a lot of good tidbits I took out of that. Now, I don't want to skip over anything first, and then we can can, can kind of continue into transition to your career as a mayor of Salem and all the other uh, leadership work and involvement you've been doing in your communities as we go forward. But um, let's just go back first to um, the Korean War. Um, it's 19, when did you go? 50, 51? No, I was there in 56. It was after the, uh, truce. Um, my unit was, uh, right up under the DMZ and my unit was a recon unit. And our, uh, mission was if attack, uh, when others fell back, we would go forward and blow out bridges and, and impede the enemy and coming forth. Um, the officer uh, uh, group that we had were mostly West Pointers and career, highly qualified um, army uh, officers. The personnel we had, however, was very, frankly, very low IQ. They picked off the higher IQ enlisted men as we flew over from Hawaii to Japan and, and Seoul. By the time we got to where I was, the IQ of the average uh, uh, soldier where we were at was pretty low, and uh, I don't know if that was intentional in the Army or not, but uh, it created a lot of problems or a lot of uh, um, dealing with um, their capacity to um, uh, do their job. Uh, so it, it was incumbent upon me as a uh, the uh, head of the uh, medical facility there is to train these people to take care of all sorts of wounds, and there were wounds. We had, like I mentioned, um, people stepped on uh, landmines. There was a fellow shot in the the chest, uh, things of that nature. Um, And I would say that uh, of the enlisted people, one of the higher qualified uh, individuals there were uh, uh, conscientious objectors. They were, uh, they, they didn't carry guns, but they were medics, and they were the kind that would go into the minefield to pick somebody up and take them out and risk their own lives. And I know what that's like because one day I was out walking with a friend of mine and I stepped in a, a minefield. And I looked down and I saw this, these wires sticking up and they were called bouncing Bettys. If you trip the wire, the, it would send a, an explosion up, uh, a grenade up and it would blow up uh, in your face. And 
the person I was with was <clears throat> really shook up. <laughs> he uh, uh, lost his cool. So I told him just to, to uh, turn around and step in my footsteps, and I would lead him out of that, and I did that. Um, later on, I uh, also uh, taught grenade um, training and had an episode there that was a little bit scary. Uh, we were in trenches that were about um, um, well, chest high, a little less, and we were uh, throwing live grenades. And there were two types of grenades. One is a concussion grenade that just simply blows up. The other is a fragmentary grenade that uh, sends uh, particles out, uh, fragments out to uh, do damage. And as this um, young man next to me brought his arm back, his arm hit the back of the trench and he dropped the grenade right, right between us. And you only have a few seconds uh, before that explodes. So I pick it up and I flip it up in the air and it exploded above our head. Fortunately, it was a concussion grenade. And uh, all we got is a lot of buzzing in our ear. But um, the Korean experience um, is such that even today, as you look at Korea, they have the, the, the uh, uh, nuclear weapons and any... That country is a danger to the world, uh, but any country in today's world has to know that if they send out a nuclear device to any nation, particularly America, they're going to get return mail like they've never had before. So we are at a stalemate in terms of uh, the world in that way now. Um, Russia is tends to have a lot of a aggressive attitudes in our world, and they keep moving and trying to take over territory. And I see um, Trump was talking about taking Trumps out of Germany. And I think that's oh, may, might be okay, because they've been there for a long time. But I think I wouldn't bring them home. I'd bring them to the borders of where the Russian uh, troops are so that they don't advance any further. Um, but that's a political decision that for someone else to make not me. Well, it, it was it, it's uh, it's funny because well, I wouldn't say it's funny, but it's interesting because it is basically the same conversation or same argument as it was in 1951 as it is now, except for you know just to give people uh, a little history, brief history, uh, crash course on the uh, Korean War. And correct me if I'm wrong, Korea uh, was owned by the Japanese. When they left, the people were there and then left the North and the South. Uh, the North was occupied by the Soviet troops. The South was occupied by the American troops. Both parties left. And then the com communists up North, North Korea and their dictator in uh, South Korea, North Korea invaded and went below the 38th parallel, 36th mm -hmm. parallel. Yeah, 38th. And then um, they, that's when the United States had to intervene, brought in 16 nations to um, you know, back uh, the capitalist's philosophy. You know, the theory goes, if they take over one nation, they can take over others. And here's this domino effect. And it, it, is it interesting to you that it's literally the same conversation or same battle, I guess, philosophy battle that's been going on uh, your whole lifetime? Yes, and it it, it, it it continues into like Vietnam. That was the same when the French left, mm. and then we went in there, right? And uh, and look what happened there. Uh, how much money and lives were spent there, and not, well, now you have Viet 
the Vietnamese becoming our friendly nation to us and a nation that we deal with and trade with a lot. It's a pattern that we seem to have in America. We got into Iraq, maybe foolishly, uh, and look what happened there. And we're Afghanistan, and um, it, it is a, a tendency of, of, of America to have leadership that takes us into conflicts that maybe we would be better off not being involved in, in my opinion. Uh, I do feel, though, that uh, young people that graduate now from college uh, don't necessarily have much of a, a commitment to community. And maybe if we had a, uh, a uh, maybe if they had to serve in the Peace Corps or something like that for a year, that might not be a bad idea because when you serve your country, that's a good thing. And uh, uh, the sense of community is something that's always been inbreded in me, and I've tried to instill that in all of my kids and grandkids to say that when you live in a community, you need to contribute to that community. And a community goes apart like a puzzle. It's like one piece at a time. So you put one, one good piece in and another good piece, another good piece, or you can put bad pieces and do nothing. And there are communities that are alive and active and responsive, and then there are others that are not. So there's a tendency uh, to focus on, particularly in, I would think, in real leaders, uh, their focus would be on the jobs. And I, as I read the magazine, I see they talk about um, the hard work it takes to talk about how you've got to you put hours in, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. What I don't see sometimes is that what about their family and their fun in life? And that was another thing I would want to counsel people on if I have any wisdom is that uh, family really counts. As you get older, you live with your memories. And your memories are the darn good things that you did with your family. You were probably I'm not probably. I know you remember the trip we took you and Riley, your brother, to England and came back on the Queen Mary. That's right. That's the kind of things that stick with people. And people who push hard, they 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 make money, and uh, and they they don't read much. They read uh, business magazines, so they become well well off, dull people. Mm. And they're not the people. The people that 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 can make a. Uh, a showing at a, at a party once, but they're not particularly interest, people interested in talking to them again if they haven't had a full life. And a full life means all sorts of things. It means arts. It means music. It definitely means reading more. I think reading more, um, not just um, business stuff. Like right now, I'm reading Bill Bryson's The Body. If you want to know about your body, Bill Bryson's a good person to read, nonfiction. If you want to have fun reading, John Grissom is a kind of author that I like to read. But I find young people and young, particularly in the business area, often only read business um, literature. So that was something that I would convey to others that uh, as you move along in life, read hundreds and hundreds of thousands of books that uh, fill your life in different ways, make you a more well-rounded, rich person to be with and and have others to enjoy. 
Now, Bob, I don't want to blow smoke or anything, but it seems like you have had a strong moral compass. Would you say that? Would you agree with that? Yes. And I would say that you have known, at least you have thought about what you want at an early age, and that's the, the right thing to do. Now, a lot of people, like you mentioned earlier, materialism, a lot of people will chase something that, they, that they're not. Uh, they will compare themselves to other people that they're not, and they'll find themselves down the line, and they'll have all this money, and then they'll look back and say, "This isn't who I am." You know, it's a it's a big reason for divorces. It's a big yeah. reason for uh, leaving a job. Uh, it's a big reason uh, for depression and suicide. Um, why do you think that is exactly? Why do you think it's so hard for people to understand who they are and what they want uh, in this life? and be a part of something that's uh, bigger than themselves. In a marriage, um, people start out generally about the same. They're in college and they marry somebody in college, for example, or high school. And then as time passes, one of the two accelerates and the other one doesn't necessarily. And often that has been the women that are home taking care of in the past family. In my case, as a dentist, I was a doctor and I accelerated. I, I was seen in the community as somebody that was um, respected and involved, whereas my wife was home taking care of the kids. So after a while, that, <laughs> that will change. And as you become older, all you people out there that were above you're going to find yourself maybe in the backseat because the grandmas are much more important to the family than the grandpas are in many ways. So that, that is, uh, is one thing that, uh, that I would counsel people is that maybe you've got to just sort of re recognize that in your marriage and, uh, and respect that. And you wait a while, and all of a sudden, you'll if you if you truly love your wife, uh, uh, give a time to the scales to balance themselves, and they will balance themselves. And then, when you're my age and you're sitting there with sixty years of marriage, you will be able to share wonderful memories. One of the things that I told my wife Carol when I was going with her is that we were going to see the world. No matter what, and we did. We've been all around the world, and we've traveled a lot. So, doing good things together with your partner is a healthy thing to do as well. I want to go back to in a moment you shared in time in Korea about how you came, and the IQ of the people who were leading you may have been a little bit lower. I've had another guest on the show that said there's a difference between a CEO and a leader. Just because you have a title does not mean you're a leader. To yeah. you, what was that experience like? How do you as a leader recognize that and make sure that the ultimate team goes the right way without overstepping your role? Hierarchy is such a big problem. It's a great thing. It's also a bad thing. It's a curse. You see with also, say, police brutality. Say so you have a, a, a more experienced officer and he's telling a less experienced officer to do something and you cannot avoid that. Or if it's um, a CEO of a company telling someone to do something that's unethical, you can't say no to that. 
well, you can and you can't. So there's, there's kind of this blurry line in the middle. What was your experience in this moment? And what were some of the things that you did to steer the boat in the right direction? In the military, um, uh, I don't think it was being naive. I think it was being true to my ethical and moral values. I was challenged, uh, as I mentioned when I wrote my story here recently, the very first month that I was in the military, I was, it was a winter, very cold winter, and I was uh, officer of the day, taking care of the guard. The guard guards the perimeter of our uh, unit, and it's very important. I mean, you've got to have outposts out there, and they have to be alert. And as I went down and checked, I found a couple of them almost asleep. And that is a derelict of duty. You, you can be really severely punished for that. But when I asked them why, they said, well, we, I was just on guard duty a night ago or two nights ago. And I said, really? And I found out they were from my company, the medical company. And I found the other company that shared the guard duty was pulling guard duty every 14 days. And our men were pulling it up every other day. And they've been doing it for months. So what, what I had a decision. I was officer of the guard. I was responsible for this, for them that day, for the, for the security of our unit. I took all of the ones that uh, were pulling guard duty every two days, took them off and put them in the guardhouse. And I put the others that were sitting in the guardhouse that hadn't pulled duty for 14 days out on um, the, the outposts. I immediately got a call from a captain, and he chewed me out. I mean, he really, he really chewed me out. And un uniquely, he was one of my um, ROTC instructors in Ripon College. He, he didn't recognize me, but I recognized him. And I had a decision. He said, get your damn ass off there and get him off. And he was really going up and down. Finally, I, I had a decision. And I said, no, sir. And I didn't. And I hung up. Got a phone call five minutes later from a major, and he did the same thing to me. And it's kind of scary when you're a lieutenant and only been there for a month. But what was what was right? I was doing the right thing. And so that's I just can't not do the right thing. There's something in me, and I hope in a lot of people that feel that way in today's world. We need more of that. So the next day I had to submit a report, and the captain and major submitted a report. And the West Point colonel uh, got these reports. I wasn't there when he called the captain and the major in, but I was told when he found out what the true situation was, he picked up an ashtray and threw it at the captain and major and chewed them out, right? Because they were wrong. Well, that certainly helped me. It took the pressure off me, but it also the men that I was serving in the medical corps felt much better about their lieutenant that was brand new lieutenant there. So it's that type of thing. It, you have to do the right thing and be true to your value and take whatever punishment that may happen if you uh, are, are um, if people come down on you. You gotta live with that. And in today's world, um, I sometimes wonder 
if if a lot of uh, people, particularly in the political world, get that because there's a bipolarism. When it comes to the community, I'll convert that army experience to the community. What I found in the community things that I did, all the projects I did, and I've done a number of them, I had to set aside my um, hangups, my political hangups, my own personal views to get a job done. So all of the jobs that I did, I had to bring art people together along with business people together. And I had to bring conservatives and liberals together. And I had to be the, the leader of them to form a team. Now, if you think that's fun, try it sometime, because when you, somebody was mad at me all the time. The artists often were crying because they were very sentimental on things. The businessmen felt I was absolutely ridiculous to, uh, couldn't I see the business sense of what I was, decisions I was making. But by bringing them together, uh, they were both needed. And in a volunteer projects in the community, you can't fire or hire. You have to beg and you have to plead for them to work together. All of the projects that I've done encompass that teamwork. Mm. But I had to reach out to those on the far right and those on the far left. And that's what we need more. We need more people not on the far right, not on the far left, more people not exactly in the center, but closer together, more teamwork. That's actually the main message that comes from all of these organizations that are leading social impact companies. They call it conscious capitalism or maximizing stakeholder value. Who are the stakeholders? It's like an engine, right? You need all the parts, stakeholders, employees, the suppliers, the distributors, customer support, the governance, municipalities, and then of course, their customers, the people. You need to invest in all of these stakeholders in order to be a successful and profitable and ethical company. So that's what they're saying. How can you be an ethical company if your products are damaging the environment in which your community lives in, right? So that's right. kind of the main message. Now, um, I, I, I want to stick on this uh, a different point, though, because uh, I was reading this book, Bob, the other day, and um, it's talking about, it's basically just about stoicism. And it's talking about what? stoicism. So uh, not avoiding obstacles, basically attacking obstacles. Any, every, anything in your life that you have a hard time with, um, you, that's the thing that you need to approach. That is the way, essentially. The book is called The Obstacle is the Way. Great book. Um, the quote is this. There's a certain humility required in the approach. It means accepting that the way you originally wanted to do things is not possible. And the reason I bring that up because I know you have a great story about this, and I'm not going to infer it. I know it'll come to you. When George Washington, everyone thinks George Washington is this great, massive, six foot four hero who rode across the Delaware and, and was notorious for defeating the British Army, except all, all of the head on head battles, he was almost like a coward. He went to the side. He did things in a way that was embarrassing, was not the noble way. He avoided large crowds. He wore these British armies out. 
When he crossed the Delaware, he did it on Christmas Day because they weren't expecting it. It's not a good thing to do. You don't want to be known as the person, you know, starting stuff on Christmas Day. And he blew up a ship that actually was uh, filled with Germans, you know. So this is the, the point I'm trying to get to is sometimes to get to where you want to go, you have to go the long way. The long way might be the this the the quickest way there. And sometimes when you are um, trying to, um, I guess just for your example, Bob, but you, you do have a few stories in your training camp where you may have not have done the, the ordinary, the conventional approach. Does any story come out to you or ring a bell when you were in training camp or something like this where you were tasked with an objective and you went a different direction than somebody else? Oh, I think it happens, has happened to me most of the time with almost all the projects I've done, not just the ones that are in, in the military. Um, but I think of the persistent and tenacity that you have to have when you feel you're right and you're working on a project. Uh, when I moved from Salem to Portland, uh, to live, few people knew me. Uh, and I live on the Willamette River. I'm looking at it right now. And the maritime history of Portland and Oregon was important. And my father was in the Second World War, fought in the Pacific, and was on a Liberty ship. So I thought, well, they dismantled a lot of Liberty ships right next door to me here. And I wonder if they dismantled his. They, they did not. But then I found out that the history of the maritime history of Portland has been lost. And I said, it really ought to be come back. And we have what we call greenways here. There are bike and pedestrian trails along the river. It's a state goal to have those, a wonderful goal. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had outdoor maritime displays along the pedestrian paths up here to tell the history, maritime history of Portland. Because during World War II, for example, 100,000 people moved to Portland, mostly blacks and low income, to build ships. That was important. It changed Portland forever. I knew that I couldn't just come to the city council here because they didn't know who in the hell I was. And so I had to build a base. Okay, so the base only took 10 years to build a base. Okay, so what I did is I went to the Historical Society. And I said, do you think this is a good idea to, to have outdoor displays along the next greenway? And they, I had to get an appointment. I had to go to their board. I had to make the presentation. And then I had to follow up and get the letter. I got 35 letters over about eight years. It took eight years to get those letters. The city kept saying during those times, no, we're not interested in that. We're not interested in that. No, I, I don't know how many times they have to tell you, Roger. We're just not interested in that. Then one day after about eight years, they called me up. They said, we want to talk to you, the Park and Rec Division. And I went down and I said, why am I here? He said, we give up. I said, what do you mean? He said, you've just got too much support. You've got so much support that we recognize that we have to pay attention to that. So on the, they put me on the committee. On that committee voted unanimously 
to, in the next future Greenway, to put the maritime history out there. So what I'm saying to you is that tenacity, stick with it, and just keep chipping away, chipping away and build your base. Hmm. Don't just be you there. I had to get um, Terry Emmert, for example, it was a he's Emmert International. He moved the Spruce Goose. He's a very far right guy, very, but he's a patriot. So I went to see him and I said, I want you to, to move the smokestacks of the battleship Oregon. They're huge. And I want you to do it free. And he said, I'll do it. He didn't, he didn't uh, say, uh, ask me if I was a liberal or a Democrat or a Republican. These people are wanting to help good things happen, but you have to prepare. You have to, you just can't wing it. You have to build your base of support. So that's what I would say about that. Uh, by the way, Spruce Goose built right here in San Diego, which is now that's Costco. Right. That's right. It didn't fly very well, though. <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, now, the story, now that's a great story. The story I, I think is going to be the most benef- of benefit for our audience is the story when you were in a camp with, and, they, and you had to basically survive for a certain amount of days, and it was, they had to go out and get you. Tell that story because I think it's so unique. Why well, You went a different route than everybody else. Yeah. It was the most simple route, wasn't it? That was a Far East, Air Force Far East survivor course in Okinawa. And I had been in Korea for about a year and I had not taken a break. And so uh, this, this drop came down. They said, would you like to take this course in Okinawa uh, and, and survivor's course? And I, I, I didn't grab onto the survivor's course a part of it real quick. I, I thought it'd be a nice way to get a break and have a vacation. Well, it was not a vacation. Um, this course was it was given by officers who had been captured in uh, wars and uh, survived. They were serious. <laughs> this was not a recreational uh, trip. They put us through all sorts of things to make us understand that if you were captured, there was rat lines, there were ways uh, to get help to you to, to pick you up, but you had to survive. You had to be able to eat a rat. Yes, you had to be able to do things like that. And you had to be able to um, live. And you had to be able to want to escape. They had airplanes that would come in and pick people up. And they were only could be on the ground for a matter of seconds. Uh, and we watched those planes come in. They were super quiet. And they would drop in and hit the ground, open the door and pick up a package and be off. But they were telling us that you can, that could be you getting on that plane instead of a package. Well, they had a, 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 uh, a project where we were sent out to be hunted by Marines. And the Marines had uh, picked up about 90%, 95% of every group that was sent out uh, to, uh, to uh, try to escape them. And the goal was you would be uh, let out in a certain place and you had to go 20 miles to a certain place, cross a line. And when you cross the line, you would be safe. In the process, they let us all out and then the Marines would hunt us down. And most of the guys 
tried to get on a, on a bus. You were picked up right away. They went into the village. They did all sorts of stupid things. Other ones went to the most serious jump through the jungles where there were uh, pits that were uh, dug years ago for World War II where they had stakes in where you'd fall in and you could die. And then they had poisonous snakes and all of that. Uh, they were picked up pretty fast. I had a Navy uh, Navy uh, navigator who was six foot four and kind of like you. He said he would take care of me. Well, it was since February. It was cold. And we were out there in the cold every night. And after a while, he just folded up. He just couldn't handle it. How long? Yeah, he couldn't handle it. How, I was how long? Care. How long until he? Oh, I'd say about four or five days we were out there. Mm. And then... But what I did right away, I said, we're going to go to the, the, the first day. We're going to go to the Marine uh, camp. And he said, are you, are you serious? And I said, no. I said, the Marines, they're so damn gung-ho, they're going to be taken off the minute their whistle's blown, right? So he said, that's ridiculous. And I said, well, you just follow me. He said, well, okay. We went there, and they were all gone. But they left a lot of food. They left a lot of things there. So we picked up those things. And then we advanced forward. We got to the about the 19th mile line, about a mile to go. And I said, stop, we're not going to go to the further than that because that's the mile that we're going to be really uh, uh, scouting. And I can remember being underneath a bush where the drops of water were coming down and we were cold and, and uh, freezing, really. And a Marine came by with a poncho on upside down with his rifle there, and he was walking down the path, and the path was four feet out in front of the bush where we were. And I said, just be still. And that Marine, was, he was not paying attention to anything. He was not looking around. He was just trying to walk down the damn path. He walked within four feet of me, and I said, that Marine would be dead if there was an enemy. Uh, so that, that told me it's one thing. We just got to be cool under pressure. And then uh, in, uh, when we got to the time to, to go across the line, I, I held back until uh, it got uh, middle of the night when it was really dark. And I said, I know it's going to be hard to get across that line. But we went across that line in the middle of the dark. And of the um, 50 or so of us that were on that, there was only four of us that made it across the line without being captured. Uh, we were one of them. And uh, so it just told me that you have to, one, be cool under pressure. And there's something about me. Others don't. Some people flake out. But I've had many times in my life where I've been confronted with danger, and I somehow just get real cool. And I hope a lot of people um, try, to get, try to realize that if you're, you're cool, you're likely to be safer than if you, you're, you're not. Ice in your veins. I love Ice it. in your veins. <laughs> the real ones do, definitely. Now, when you're the mayor of the state's capital, that comes with a lot of pressure too. What were some things that you had to deal with as a mayor and how did you manage or, or lead uh, out of these pressure situations? Actually, I got into politics only because of my family and that we used to have uh, dinner time discussions about politics all the time. And as you know, your mother's pretty good about uh, weighing in. And 
this time there was a councillor that was going to leave the city council of Salem, but he would only do it if the others handpicked his successor. So I asked my children, what do you think about that? They said it was a bad idea. And I said, ah, that's good. But then they said, he's in your ward. Why don't you run? And I said, well, I, I, I can't run. I mean, I've got all six family of six to take care of. I've got a dental practice. I can't do that. You know, I can't, I can't. That night I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, if I challenged him, I would lose because he's got the votes to pick somebody of his own choice, but I could make the point. So I said, I'll make the point, I'll lose, but I'll make the point and that will be, um, that will be something I can discharge my responsibility. Well, I did challenge him and Within a couple of weeks, I wound up being on the city council because everything turned around. The press got a hold of it. The story twisted. And all of a sudden, now I'm sitting on the city council as a city council, making a total of $40 a month. That was not quite what my dental practice brought in in a month per day. So it was a big sacrifice. And during that time, uh, I had... Uh, like all city councilors, a, a, a lot of things to deal with. I called it the meat and potatoes, but I always took the dessert. For me, the dessert was something that I wanted to see done, not just what the city wanted to see done. And that project as a city council was the Elsinore Theater. And if people go to Elsinore Theater, um, Salem, they will see that theater. It was be going to be torn down in an urban renewal area, but it was a gorgeous theater. It was a Gothic theater. It was a classic theater, a theater that shouldn't be turned down, although it was in bad disrepair. Ultimately, that theater now is restored and is now the performing arts center for the city of Salem. So I had five years of that. And then I, I also, I left uh, the politics and I was 10 years out of politics when uh, I was asked to run for mayor. And at that time, there was a person that, that people were very concerned about. Uh, and um, I was difficult to do because I was retired then, but I was convinced to run and I made a decision to run and I did. And um, I was outspent greatly, and, but I won um, and became uh, mayor. And when I became mayor, once again, I looked at the city and said, what does it need, in my opinion? And I knocked on 20,000 doors, by the way, in the, in the process of becoming mayor. And that's a lot of people to talk with. And I knew what they wanted. And one was this uh, riverfront park. It was down on the river, and, and there was a lot of old uh, warehouse buildings there. At, and uh, mayors for years had tried to get that to be a major park. It is now a major park. And uh, that was a uh, accomplishment that I feel very proud of. But I also, when you go into politics, and I, I, I encourage a lot of younger people to do it, and you can start out by finding out that there's a, um, a position that nobody's running for. And you can run for it and win because there's nobody running for it. You can become involved and, and you can start that way. Um, but a city has so much more than what any politician might think they have. They might have two or three things on their mind. When you get in there, you find out 
that you didn't know that there was a big Korean community or a big Asian community or a big uh, black community that had needs. And there are other needs like we had a problem with our water system and the reservoir was leaking and the pipes down were leaking. It was a $250 million project that had to be done. Uh, the city councils had not been raising the sewer and water rates because it was unpopular. So I took that on and that, that got done. So you can do a lot of things, get a lot of things done and make good things happen. So I would encourage people when they get in the community to look at their city government and see if there isn't some way they can get involved in some portion of it to make a contribution to their community. So you, you discussed about these symbols, these, uh, the restoration project of the theater, um, these, these things that mean a lot to the city, that represent something. Uh, now, you, you were also responsible for putting in Eco-Earth, a project that took a ton of Eco-Earth, a yes. project that took a lot of um, stakeholders yep. as well, the artisans, uh, people, donations, the city. It was an old uh, industrial ball. Um, I forget what the ball was, but it was turned into some beautiful artifact. That now represents, you know, world peace, um, uh, uh, environmentalism, uh, coming together as a nation, as a world. Um, why is that so important to the people when you knocked on all those doors? Why do you think that was so important to the people that that represents the city? Yeah, in that um, that ball that you mentioned was 26 feet in diameter. Okay. And it was located in the, the uh, area where the Riverfront Park was to go. And it was covered with black tar that the uh, Boise Cascade processed pulp into it. Mm. It was very ugly. And the question is what to do with it. And I uh, inherited the, the, uh, that. And, uh, and a lot of people said, just get rid of it. And there were a lot of ideals because it was black and it was ugly. Some people said, put a wick on it, make it a bomb. Some said, make it a chia pet. All sorts of ideas. I said, no way. <laughs> not, not, on, not on my watch. And so I took that on, again, thinking it would take a couple of years. And again, it took about eight, ten years to do. Uh, and if people go to eco-earth-globe-salem, they will see a globe that has 86,000 tile on it, hundreds of icons that could be sited in the city of Paris or Chicago or anywhere, and they would be very proud of it. It is something that I'm very proud of because it took 30,000 hours, volunteer hours to do it, lots of money and a lot of effort to put those tiles on. You have to turn it into an Earth's um, globe with all the continents and you can imagine 86 tiles tiles going around africa and all the areas tile cutters had to set that and put that on the artists were involved again in that and and the business people the business people didn't seem to realize that when they do a, a building they get the capital from the uh, bank and then they hope they have enough money to, to complete the project here, you have to beg for every dollar. And I was the major fundraiser on that. And I didn't want anybody on the committee to uh, wind up in debt. So when the business uh, representative, who I badly needed to have on the project, uh, I said, um, uh, I gave him $10,000 to get some things done. 
I said, when you get up to about eight, 9,000, let me know. The next meeting, he, I said, how much have you spent? He said, I spent 17. I said, no, you can't do that. He kept doing that. And so finally, we had to take over control of the money mm. so that I, when I, I had to have the money. I couldn't spend money I didn't have, and I couldn't make people on the board be responsible for, for debt. Right. So he was not happy with me, but he was essential. And so, yes, the Eco Earth Project is something that I, I'm very proud of. And um, I, I, it, it, a community has to sweat. They have to work to get good things. If they get it easy, it isn't worth doing. You have to find something that, it, that requires effort and work and concern. Because there were times they said, it's just not going to happen. The Elsner Theater it was going to fail many times. You just keep working at it, keep working at it. And all of a sudden, something happens. You get a grant from Fred Meyer, some business, or something like that. Mitsubishi came along and gave us a big check. And all of a sudden, it looked like it was going to be a winner. Mm. And when it looks like a winner, everyone wanted to be aboard. Mm. And then it becomes rather fun to have it done. Powerful, powerful message there. Now, for people that are saying, because I know this, uh, the eco earth is deteriorating now, it needs a lot of yeah. refurbishments, it needs a lot of uh, restoration. Yeah. For people that want to take this symbol down, you say? Uh, they have to ask themselves, uh, what is their community goals and, and aspirations? Uh, the tiles, some of the tiles came off because I think the city power washed it mm. and you don't want a power wash tile. They can be put back on and they should be put back on. It's an icon in the city right now. It is like the Seattle Space Needle. And I think they'd have a lot of trouble taking that one down. So I think I trust that the community of Salem will come together and restore that. It's not as if it can't be done. And it is, it is, has the names of thousands of people around that. Instead of having bricks with their names on, what I came up with was flags. So if you're from, if you're French, you can have a French flag with your name on it. All these flags are uh, on the wall around it. And there are uh, heartfelt memories of people that really um, stress to get help that project. One young lady, uh, a high school um, um, woman, uh, she died of cancer. Her father uh, had the business of building fences. So he donated all of the fence work around that. So there are many, many stories. When you do projects that are community-wise, people, people put their soul and their effort into it. We have a park where Jack Cassell's um, uh, son uh, was involved with uh, community building um, playgrounds. And so his truck came in and the community built the whole playground and everyone had a part in it. So those things, you don't want to take apart when they have trouble. You want to put them back together. Mm. And what do you think would, that would say about the community if they were to take away something like that? It would say they lost part of their soul. Mm. It's a little bit like the Biden now is talking about our nation losing 
part of our soul. And I know that's political. Some people will object to my saying that. But a community has a soul just like individuals have. And if you don't pay attention to the full needs of the community, you're not paying attention to the community needs as a whole. Um, so I have faith in Salemites because Salem has always been a good town in the long run if you work them hard and you ask for help. It's, people want to volunteer. If you ask people for help, they want to volunteer. If you are straightforward people and you, uh, you're, you seek the truth, and if you tell somebody, I want you on this committee, I know you're a liberal, and all these people on the committee are conservatives, but you tell them the truth, I need you on this committee, they're likely to understand it. But if you just don't tell them, mm. and then you invite them to an area where they're shocked, well, that's not being truthful to the people. So a community has to be true to its own goals. If it loses goals, it loses its way. Mm. So I don't think Salem's going to lose its way. I think it'll it'll uh, restore that as well as it has restored many things in the past. One other thing before we leave, Kevin, that I want to mention that I wanted to uh, to tell you others about is in if I were a young person, your age, and uh, out there looking at my future, I would tell you to look for trends. Look for trends because. And I'm going to give you an example of a trend. I live in a condo tower. We have a concierge. And several years ago, when I went by the concierge, he would get a boxes from FedEx or someplace like that. And there'd be three boxes there. And then about six months later, there were eight boxes. And then about a, four months later, there were 15 boxes. And all of a sudden, there are 20 boxes. And on each box, there was a tape, and it was said, Amazon. And I said, huh, that's a trend. So what I did is I bought Amazon stock. Okay, it's done very well for me. So there are trends out there. Are we going to have a virus forever? Could happen, because viruses can mutate. A year from now, we may be fighting COVID-20. And a year from that, COVID-25, it could be with us forever. What does that mean? Or it could be gone. What does that mean? Hmm. Lots of businesses are gone. A lot of offices are no longer functioning. There's no need for an office anymore. What about all those offices? What should they be used at? There are trends out there. You've got eyes. Look, see the trends. And you've got a mind. There are trends out there. So I would counsel people that are particularly in the business area to ask themselves, what do I see? Because hmm. that's right out in front of your eyes. Those three boxes that went to 20 told me something, particularly when they all had mostly Amazon markings on them. So I would be saying to myself now, where are we headed here? We get a vaccine, will it work? Will it not work? What does that mean? What's that going to mean to the food industry, the restaurants? What's that going to mean to travel? What's it going to mean? How do you so see look, things changing? Yeah. How do you see things changing? 
Uh, I would say it's going to be several years before we return to a new normal. And I don't know what that new normal is going to be. If I told you, you would say, that guy doesn't have good wisdom because nobody knows that. Nobody knows that, right? Uh, I do think it's going to force us to look at our relationships because now we're social distancing. We walk by people, we walk away from them. But what do we need? We need socialism, socialistic social ties with people. People want to be uh, together. They want to go to concerts. They want to, to have friends. They want to be, they want to hug your family. Kevin, when I see you, I don't want to touch elbows. I want to hug you. <laughs> and I see all the rest of my grandkids. So I don't know what's in front of us. I'll leave that up to you and the others to help make whatever is going to happen, happen. Wise words again, Bob, I just want to appreciate you coming on the, the Real Ears podcast today. You've shared a lot. You shared some life lessons, um, some great wisdom, the moral compass, following trends, um, sometimes not following trends and, and going back to the camp to find the food when the Marines uh, all leave the base camp. And, uh, and, and great advice on materialism as well, how people get lost and, and, and are able to come back to their ways. Now, with all this in mind, with your experience in leadership, with what we talked about today, what is your definition of a real leader? For me, it's, I knew you were going to ask that question. So for me, it's very simple. It, a, a real leader is somebody that makes good things happen. That's how simple it is. Uh, I'll give you a, before we finish, I want to give you an example of a, a real leader, two real leaders. One is, um, Hazel Patton in Salem. She's the kind of person that all of her life, adult life, has been a real leader. She has not been somebody that, um, frankly, like Bill Gates, who, who now is a real leader, but as he went through his business year, he probably was pretty cutthroat, and he probably was building, reading his company. When he became a multi-billionaire, he now is a fantastic real leader. But he wasn't the, the type that I'm talking about, the Hazel Patton in, in Salem, who was a real leader all her life and didn't make a billion dollars. There are two kinds. The Hazel's kind is in every community. Every community has those real leaders and their treasures. They get good things done. I'd like to think that I may, maybe I'm one of those types. The other type, another kind, is my son-in-law, Mark Van Ness, your stepfather. Mark and Julie, your mother, Mark's good deed, as you know, four or five years ago when he brought a million slightly used children's book to Oregon and put them in the hands of low-income kids. That was a fantastic thing to do. Um, I went to a school, my wife and I went to a school where those books were given out to low-income kids. They could take five books and keep them for their own. Some of them never owned a book. 
So real leaders, as I understand it, those CEOs that live around the world, 28,000, sort of have two goals. One is to make money. That's a good goal. The other is to do some good, something good for the world. Hmm. That is unique. When you have that many CEOs around the world doing good things for the world, that is phenomenal. And I applaud real leaders for that. Again, Bob, appreciate your time coming on the Real Leaders podcast today. Family is important, so we want to make this happen today um, before uh, I, I am done with this podcast and it's too late. For Dr. Roger Gurdon-Rich, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, make good things happen, folks, and always keep it real. Bob, thanks for coming on. Take care, Kevin. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode with my grandfather, Dr. Roger Gurdon-Rich. You know, I, I, I was just thinking one day, we've had so many CEOs come on the podcast and just boil success down the family. And I thought, who would I be if I never had my favorite leader come on this podcast? My own grandfather. Who would I be as a leader myself? So that's why we did it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you if you did, actually, I hope you would leave a review because we're trying to get to 50 by the end of August. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, go to all episodes, scroll all the way down to the bottom and leave a review to let others know what to expect when they get to this channel. Thanks for being a real leader, folks. And always keep it real.